If you only have a 401k, you're not getting the most for retirement. Wait, what? Add a Robinhood IRA on top, then they'll boost it by 3%. You can do that? And if you transfer in any retirement account, you get 3% on top of that. Is there a limit to the match? No limit. Robinhood Gold gets you the biggest contribution match of any IRA on the market. Sign up for Robinhood Gold at Robinhood.com slash boost by April 30th. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Match on transfers subject to additional terms and conditions. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC. Welcome to the Cocky Ride Home for Wednesday, December 23rd, 2020. I'm Jackson Bird. How Star Wars toys have changed over the years and why it may not be a good thing for kids. What if there were tons of alien civilizations somewhere in the Milky Way galaxy, but they're all long since dead? And the Danish tradition of leaving porridge out on Christmas Eve to bribe mischievous elves. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Come Friday morning, many kids around the world will be happily ripping open boxes of toys under the Christmas tree. But as far as Star Wars toys go, more of those may be sitting under the tree for grown-ups than for kids. That's because as the years go on, Star Wars merchandise manufacturers are increasingly targeting the action figures and other gear toward adult collectors. Those with disposable incomes, and as Adam Paulus, a toy buyer for a major site as well as a lifelong Star Wars collector, says, quote, "...about the same impulse control as children." End quote. But Jesse Hessinger argues in Polygon that while there are many ways it does seem to be true that the toys are changing to be more successful with the adult demographic, they're not actually appeasing hardcore fan collectors. And some of those same changes are the ones that are also leaving kids behind. Hassinger explains that Star Wars toys, when they debuted and for many years after, were pretty weird. They were groundbreaking in a lot of ways as far as movie tie-ins go. In fact, while merchandise for films was always around in some kind of capacity, it didn't get taken seriously until after Star Wars. George Lucas famously forfeited $500,000 of his director's fee on A New Hope so that he could retain full rights to the merchandising, something Fox thought he was completely naive to do at the time, but they soon ate their words. The Star Wars merch was so immediately successful that they had to sell IOUs in the form of early bird certificates for Christmas that year because so many kids wanted Star Wars action figures that weren't ready yet. And over the years, Star Wars merchandise has generated over $25 billion in revenue, and while Lucas sold the rights to Disney back in 2013, that early idea that there could be something to the idea of branded lightsabers and action figures is what made Lucas himself a billionaire, and probably part of what propelled Star Wars into such a consistently popular and successful franchise. But anyways, the original merchandise wasn't just strange because it was such a popular tie-in, but also because they made action figures of minor characters in addition to the main cast. Dozens of them. Nowadays, the action figures are at least three times as expensive and reduced down to just main characters. To get deeper cuts or more detailed figures, you have to follow special collection lines, not just shop at your local Target. 
The upcoming generation is not as interested in action figures across the board, so Star Wars has significantly cut back their offering, and what is there is usually aimed more at the hardcore adult collectors, not the kids. And that's not to say that Star Wars merchandise isn't selling, it is, like hotcakes as it always has, it's just not the traditional action figures. Instead, there's plushies, clothing, cell phone cases, really almost anything you could want has been slapped with some officially licensed Star Wars iconography. But that's what it is, iconography. A stormtrooper or Darth Vader helmet, Yoda's head, a pair of lightsabers, the stuff that sells is what's popular and recognizable. Outside of Baby Yoda, nothing else from The Mandalorian is even recognizable enough to the general non-Mandalorian viewing public to get top billing or to be made in merchandise form at all. And Hassinger points out that the closest equivalent of the more affordable action figures with minor characters included today would be Funko Pops, but those are designed to be displayed on a shelf, not to be played with. And this gets at the crux of Hassinger's point. Kids are missing out on imaginative play. Quoting Hassinger in Polygon, Star Wars is ridiculous pulp and an endless obsession. Like plastic action figures, it's both disposable and permanent. There's something sad about leaving action figures as an occasional bone tossed to adult collectors rather than turning them into old-school fuel for kids' imaginations. This holiday season, the indestructible Star Wars merchandising armor continues to look awfully familiar. One of the most recent Mando Mondays, a day of hype for product drops, included the announcement of, get this, a Black Series edition of a Mandalorian-era Stormtrooper. In other words, another helmet-based non-character that draws on the iconography of the original trilogy. When so many of these products seek to recall that same old imagery, there's less encouragement for younger fans to imagine their own offshoot adventures where prequel, sequel, original trilogy, and spin-off characters might interact in new ways. End quote. And I mean, you could go as far as to say that if today's standards for culling merchandise down to just the main characters was upheld back when the original trilogy came out, we wouldn't even have the Mandalorian series today. Because if Boba Fett hadn't gotten his own action figure, hadn't been made into a Halloween costume and everything else and won the hearts of so many kids and turned into this rare collectible and beloved character for so many, would the idea of a story based around a bounty hunter have really won the pitch when Lucasfilms needed to come up with something for Disney Plus? I know, that's really stretching it, but the symbiotic relationship between fans and creators really can be powerful. And what minor characters are fans not falling as in love with now because there aren't additional access points to learn and imagine more about them? And without a fan base around a minor character leading the franchise to make more content around those minor characters, which is then well-received by fans because of their love for that character or ones similar to them, the universe of fan favorites to pull from will get smaller and smaller. Like so much in life, we can't only have the hits. We need the B-sides to mix it up, to spark imagination, and get more creative in the future. The search for extraterrestrial intelligence is a fire that will probably never stop burning for some people, but what if we shouldn't simply be asking ourselves where other intelligent life may be in our galaxy, but also when? 
specifically in the past and long gone. In a newly published paper that's awaiting peer review, three Caltech physicists and notably one high school student used statistical modeling to calculate the probability of life emerging in the Milky Way and when. Their work is an update of sorts on the 1961 Drake Equation, written by Frank Drake and popularized by Carl Sagan on Cosmos. The Drake Equation lays out factors that scientists should consider in order to come to an estimate of the number of extraterrestrial civilizations in the galaxy. Not so much to actually calculate the number, but mostly to frame debates and approximate possibilities. But we now have way more data to go on than we did 60 years ago. Jonathan H. Jiang, the study's co-author and astrophysicist at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, told Live Science, quote, Especially since the Hubble Space Telescope and Kepler Space Telescope, we have lots of knowledge about the densities of gas and stars in the Milky Way galaxy and star formation rate and exoplanet formation and the occurrence rate of supernova explosions. We actually know some of the numbers that were mysteries at the time of the famous Cosmos episode, end quote. So the study authors looked at factors such as, quote, the prevalence of sun-like stars harboring Earth-like planets, the frequency of deadly radiation-blasting supernovas, the probability of and time necessary for intelligent life to evolve if conditions are right, and the possible tendency of advanced civilizations to destroy themselves, end quote. That tendency ended up being a major variable, although one of the more uncertain ones, because, quote, even an extraordinarily low chance of a given civilization wiping itself out in any given century, say via nuclear holocaust or runaway climate change, would mean that the overwhelming majority of peak Milky Way civilizations are already gone, end quote. And that peak could have been as much as 5 billion years ago. Here's a little more on how they got these calculations. Quote, Modeling the evolution of the Milky Way over time with those factors in mind, they found that the probability of life emerging based on known factors peaked about 13,000 light years from the galactic center and 8 billion years after the galaxy formed. Earth, by comparison, is about 25,000 light years from the galactic center, and human civilization arose on the planet's surface about 13.5 billion years after the Milky Way formed, though simple life emerged soon after the planet formed. In other words, we're likely a frontier civilization in terms of galactic geography, and relative latecomers to the self-aware Milky Way inhabitant scene. But assuming life does arise reasonably often and eventually becomes intelligent, there are probably other civilizations out there, mostly clustered around that 13,000 light-year band, mostly due to the prevalence of sun-like stars there. End quote. So we may be much more alone than we would have been at a time in the distant past. You know, a long time ago, in a part of our galaxy far, far away. One more trip to Europe before Christmas to explore some interesting traditions, this time in Denmark. As kids in America may be getting ready to leave out cookies for Santa on Friday, 
And don't worry, after his scientifically dubious assertions about old Saint Nick having magical immunity to COVID-19, Dr. Fauci has since clarified that he took a trip to the North Pole to vaccinate Santa Claus himself. Anyways, while here in the U.S. it's cookies for Santa, in Denmark, children leave out porridge for mischievous elves as a bribe to make sure they behave. The elves, not the kids. The idea of needing to keep these elves, or Nissa, happy goes back to at least the Middle Ages, when farmers explained various bad luck and the hardships of a long winter on the Nissa who lived on their farm. If you kept the Nissa happy, your livestock would survive the winter and all else would go well. If you disrespected or upset the Nisa, you may find horrors in the morning, like your cow having dropped dead. To stay on your Nisa's good side, families began offering him a bowl of porridge on Christmas Eve. Porridge was a common staple at the time, but the one for the Nisa would be special, made of rice instead of oats or barley, boiled in milk, and topped with butter. Atlas Obscura shares one account of someone not leaving out the proper offering, quote, In one story, a milkmaid decides to play a trick on her farm's Nisa, hiding the butter beneath the porridge. Seeing his offering ungarnished, the Nisa flies into a rage and kills the family's cow. When he finishes his meal and realizes his mistake, he solves the problem by stealing a neighbor's cow and delivering it to his family's farm. End quote. So you really didn't want to get on their bad side. There are many artworks depicting the Nisa as almost demonic-looking elves throughout the 15 and 1600s, but by the 19th century, they had started taking on more of a happy Christmas elf kind of look. Quoting again, A child-sized bearded man in a pointy red cap, the traditional garb for farmhands. End quote. Anne Met Marchin Andersen, a curator at the National Museum of Denmark, chalks this change up to industrialization and urbanization, saying that, quote, The Nisa was a way for rural farmers to explain seemingly random events like illnesses among livestock. They had these thoughts because they couldn't explain bacteria or things like that, she says. As people gained a better understanding of agricultural science, the Nisa didn't need to serve the role of scary scapegoat anymore, end quote. Nowadays, the Nisa are even more jolly and innocent. They may still play pranks, like stealing one sock, or families may nominate someone to play the role of the Nisa and play small pranks on other family members throughout the month of December, but you no longer have to worry about your house's Nisa killing you or your animals. But people still leave the sweet porridge out for him on Christmas Eve, although now they usually enjoy some of it themselves as well. And I will say that there are other similar kinds of Nisa folklore and traditions throughout the other nations in Scandinavia. In some places, he's called the Tomta. Sometimes he brings presents. Sometimes he can shapeshift. There's a number of variations, so just know that this one Danish tradition is not all there is to know about the Nisa or the Tomta. Quick announcement here, we are taking the rest of the week off for the holidays, no show Thursday or Friday, and in case you want to plan out your podcast consumption, there will also be no shows next Thursday and Friday for New Year's Eve and New Year's Day. 
But hey, if you want something more to listen to, you can scroll through the archive and listen to some older episodes. You can also check out the Tech Meme Ride Home, hosted by Brian McCullough. There won't be new episodes there on those days either, but if you haven't listened to it before, there are hundreds of episodes that you can catch up on, including a lot of really fascinating interviews with leaders in the tech sphere. Just look for the weekend bonus episodes when you scroll through the feed. Again, that's Tech Meme Ride Home with Brian McCullough. But however you choose to spend your time and whether or not you're celebrating anything this week, I hope that you have a chance to rest and find a bit of joy at the end of this strange, strange year. And I will be back on Monday.